Welcome to Living Faith, the podcast ministry of the First Baptist Church of Avon Park, Florida. Living Faith features the preaching and teaching ministry of First Baptist Church from our Sunday morning and evening services, as well as our Wednesday night Bible studies for students. First Baptist Church exists to glorify God by proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ so that the lost might be saved and the Christian might be equipped. God's primary tool for this kind of growth is the regular preaching and teaching of His Word. That's why here at First Baptist, our prayer echoes that of the psalm. Above all else, God's Word and God's name should be exalted. This is part one of our new Sunday evening series entitled, What is the Church? Tonight we're going to start um, a, a series I'm just going to simply call, What is the Church? What is the church? So during this time, before we have an interim pastor, we're going to have a couple weeks of pulpit supply, and so I've been afforded the privilege to speak on Sunday nights, so I've decided instead of doing a, try to tackle a whole book of the Bible, which I might not have time to finish, I'm just going to do a, a short series with this entitled, What is the Church? And uh, the whole purpose of this is really just to instruct us to help us understand together something that we really have a, a good grasp on already, but just to remind us what the church of Jesus Christ really is and how we as a local church, First Baptist Church, fit into the larger church. If you look at the definition of the word church in the dictionary, or at least the, uh, the, when I type church, just simply type church in Google, the definition that comes up is this. It is a noun, a building used for public Christian worship. Synonym can be a place of worship, a house of God, a house of worship. And another definition includes the hierarchy of clergy of Christian organizations, especially the Roman Catholic Church or the Church of England. Okay? Now that's a pretty good dictionary definition. And if you were to go onto the street and even ask, to, even ask many of you, maybe, what is the church? You might officially and originally think, well, it's the building where we worship. Or that second definition, if you're from this kind of background, your mind immediately goes to an institution. We think of the Presbyterian Church or the Baptist Church, which is a, a misnomer. We'll talk about that later. Or the Roman Catholic Church. You think of the church as an institutional, with, uh, institutional organi- organization with hierarchy and leadership, maybe the pope or bishops or you know, whatever background you come from. I want us to understand, though, that the Bible gives us a bigger and a broader definition of what the church actually is. And I hope that's what we're going to discover uh, during this series. So look at Matthew chapter 16. We'll start in verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for sending your spirit to this place tonight. We ask that as we continue to go through this 
this time of learning tonight, that you would enable us by your spirit to see the truth that you have for us in your word, that you would enable us to grasp the true definition of your church, your body, your bride. I ask that you open our eyes to the beauty that is there in the doctrine of the church. And I ask that you would allow us to live in accordance with how beautiful and how wonderful your bride and your body really are. Help us to love one another. Help us to live in unity and submission with one another. Help us most of all to be a people that are known for proclaiming your truth and standing on your word in an increasingly hostile world. I ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so here we see Jesus promising to build his church. What exactly are we talking about? I already gave you the definition from the dictionary. We have the definition of a building, like, like what we're sitting in right now, the church. When you think of church, more often than not, we're thinking of a building. I've given you the definition of a religious hierarchy, maybe the Roman Catholic church that goes all the way up to the Pope. What are we talking about? When, when Jesus said, Peter, you are the rock, and on this rock I will build my church, what is Jesus speaking of? Well, first of all, we have to understand the origins of the word church. Unfortunately, in English, we, do ourselves, we have done ourselves a disservice when it comes to translating the word church. The word church, this is why my board is here. I hope it's helpful for you. The word church comes from German word Kirche. Kirche. Okay? English being a, a, a language that came from German more than any other, we kind of adopted this word into another word. Kirche to Chirche. Okay? And you can see how we easily go from Kirche to Chirche to church. Okay? Everything over time just kind of devolves and becomes something shorter than what it originally was. And so here we have the transition from Kirche to Chirche to our English, what we know as church. The thing is that I need us to understand tonight is that this word, the word that is translated even in Matthew chapter 16 in our English Bibles as church, is not in the Bible. Okay? There's a little shock and awe there. This word, namely this one, comes from two Greek words, and you have them there written down. We're going to talk about what they mean. It comes from this word, kurios, which means Lord, and oikos, which means house. So when some of the English translators, which we'll talk about, were translating the Bible from the Greek into the, the, the English, they didn't actually use the Greek to translate it. Instead, they used the Latin. Okay? So people like John Wycliffe, when he was translating the Bible into English, he didn't use the original Greek language to translate the Bible. He instead used Latin. And so he substituted a word for church, which we'll talk about in a minute, the true word for church, with something that was already in use. So Greek, kurios. Oikos, and then you see there, they combine those to make Kyriakos, the house of the Lord. Make sense? Kyrios, Oikos, house, Lord, or Lord house. They combine it, Kyriakos, and you have this word that's kind of a combined word that means the house of the Lord. That's where we get the German word Kirke, obviously, Kyriakos, Kyrik, Kirke, Kirche, church. Isn't that fun? You might not care at all, but that's fun to me. So, all that to say, this word 
that can be translated the house of the Lord is not the word that we see in the Bible. When Jesus says church, he did not use kiriakos. He did not use the house of the Lord. He's not talking about a building or an institution. What did Jesus use? What is the word we actually see? Well, I had an eraser up here. The, uh, the actual Greek word we see that's translated as church, as you can see there, is the word ekklesia. Ekklesia. Anybody, this sounds like a word in the Bible already, right? Ecclesiastes, that comes from the word preacher. It's just the same word. But the word ecclesia in Greek just means congregation. It can mean a gathering. It literally means called out ones. Now, what people have tried to do is make that a very spiritual thing and say, well, we're the called out of the world, you know, and it's an overly spiritualized called outness about this. But this word was a very common word in Greek, especially the Greek of the first century. It was a very common word that simply meant an assembly, a gathering, a meeting, a group of people, a congregation. Okay? It all meant the same thing. You see it throughout the Bible. In fact, there are several times in the book of Acts in which the writers, uh, the translators actually translated the word ecclesia as assembly instead of church. And what you have here when Jesus says, I will build my church, is not kyriakos, the house of the Lord, or this idea of a place of worship or an institution. Jesus said, I will build my ecclesia. I will build my congregation. I will build my people. That's a very different understanding of the word, isn't it? So why would John Wycliffe, who was a a forerunner to the Protestant Reformation, why would he choose to use the word church or house of the Lord in place of this one? We have to understand in that Roman Catholic context, there were several things that they were trying to be protected. And I think just to make sure people were familiar with the word, people understood what it was coming from, and it didn't upset too much, he chose to just simply stick with the word that was already in use, being church or the house of the Lord. Because by that time, you already have the hierarchy of the Roman Catholic Church, and that was known as the church. Okay? Especially by the time of King James, which kind of standardized the English version for a very long time, there was a, there was a special interest in preserving that word church instead of using the word assembly or congregation. Several English translations between Wycliffe and the King James Bible used the word assembly. But you can tell that wouldn't sit well with the Roman Catholic Church because they indeed did view the church as a hierarchy, an institution, an organization. So that word was just kept. And so when you look at your your English Bible today, we just have the word church. But Jesus says, I will build my ecclesia. Now, you might be lost already, but I hope you're hanging on. This word, ecclesia, congregation, gathering. In the Old Testament, if you were to look in your Old Testament right now, and you were to find any instances of gathering, congregation, assembly, which you see all throughout the Exodus, right? Call an assembly, call the congregation together, call the people together for an assembly. You see that throughout the Old Testament. This word is used of them. That purple marker isn't working out for me today. You see this word used of them. Kahal. And it means the same thing. Congregation. A gathering. Oh, looky there. 
Got a black marker from Brother Aaron. That's why, yeah, that's good. Kahal means the same thing. Congregation, a gathering, a people. When you look in the Old Testament and you see congregation, a gathering, a people, any of those things, it's that word, kahal. Okay? Everybody following so far? We're good, right? Okay. When the Old Testament, which was written in Hebrew, Old Testament written in Hebrew, everybody's following that, right? When it's translated into Greek, Okay, the Greek empire is ruling the world at this time. Then they say the Greek language is the, the, the major language of the known world at that time. So they say we need to translate the Old Testament in Hebrew into Greek. It was a virgin, version called the Septuagint. So all of these Hebrew phrases, all of the Hebrew of the Old Testament was translated into Greek. Now, can you just take a stab at what word the translators chose in place of kahal, congregation, or gathering. When they looked at the Old Testament and they saw this word, kahal, they plugged in this word, ecclesia. I'll make that darker for you. Ecclesia. So that means if you were to look at the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament, and you were to put it beside a Greek New Testament in the original language, you would see a remarkable unity between the people of God in the Old Testament and the people of God in the New Testament. You could read from Genesis to Revelation and never come across the word church in the idea of a building or an institution or a hierarchy. You would read from cover to cover of the Bible, understanding that God has saved one people for himself. That he has set aside an assembly, a gathering, a group of people, a congregation. He has saved a particular group of people for himself. That comes out when you really understand the meaning of the word. When we get away from all the trappings of churchiness as we know it, when we're going to talk about the importance of the local church, but if we were to get away from thinking about the church in terms of a building or simply an organization or an institution, we might really discover what God intends for us to understand by using this word, gathering, assembly. Okay, It's going to be very important as we go forward discovering what is the church. The church at its foundation is organic. It's an organism. It's living It's moving. It's made up not of of bricks and stones, but of people who themselves are bricks and stones. Turn to uh, 1 Peter chapter 1. Actually, 1 Peter chapter 2. Ooh, it's hot. First Peter chapter 2, we'll start in verse 9. Now this is Peter talking to Christians, okay? Talking to the church, not to, not to merely Jews. But you, Christians, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. 
Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. So we see here that Peter is identifying the church with the Old Testament people of God. Right? You see this? God has saved a peculiar chosen people for himself. So when you see the church, you ought to automatically think of God calling and saving Israel in the Old Testament. And just as God had chosen and saved Israel in the Old Testament, God has chosen and saved the church of the New Testament. And so we shouldn't really see it as an A and a B, but A all the way. God has saved one people for himself. The church is a continuation of that, an expansion of that, if you will, when we come to the cross and the resurrection. It explodes out of ethnic Israel and over all the world, which it was intended to do in the first place. Ephesians chapter 2 says that from the two, Jew and Gentile, through the cross, God has made one new man. So that when we see the congregation, the people, the assembly, we don't have assembly number one and assembly number two. We have one assembly that has been made one through the blood of Jesus Christ. That is, Gentiles have been brought into the covenants and promises of the Old Testament people of God. Okay, so we're clear, right? When we come to the Bible and a definition of the church, it's first and foremost not a building, not an organization, not a hierarchy, but it is an organism made up of people. You are a chosen people, a holy priesthood. Everybody, everybody following? We are a chosen holy people of God. That's what the church is. Okay? So as we move forward, let's talk about the characteristics of the church. When the uh, Protestant Reformation broke out in the uh, 1500s with, with Luther and others, we see a, a battle that takes place between the Roman Catholic Church, which claimed to be the one true church. You have to understand at that time, the Roman Catholic Church understood that institution to be the source of salvation. Yes, salvation for them was through Jesus, but Jesus had given his authority to Peter, and through an unbroken apostolic succession, according to the Roman Catholic thought, salvation came from the church alone. Only through the church thinking about it as an institution and an organization that led all the way to the Pope, only through the church could someone be saved through Christ. So you can imagine the conundrum that's made when someone like Luther is excommunicated and therefore begins to say, okay, the Roman Catholic Church is a false church. And that became the, just the opinion of the reformers in general. To them, the Roman Catholic Church was the whore of Babylon in the book of Revelation. They made no qualms about who the Roman Catholic Church was. To them, the Pope was the beast, the Antichrist, who rode on the, and then the church herself was the, the harlot that rode on the back of the beast. You can read all this in the Reformers, and they have some great choice words about the Pope and the Roman Catholic Church. But that was the opinion of the day. And the Roman Catholic Church, of course, responded and said, Oh no, we're the one true and living church because we have the apostolic succession that goes all the way back to Peter. You can't claim that. You're a splinter. You're a fringe group. You have broken away from the one true church. Luther and others responded by saying, 
the one true church is not decided by some kind of made-up succession or just because you have a man in a white robe who claims to be the head of the church. The true church is identified through two markings. You can see them there, two, or actually three markings, I guess. One is the right preaching of the word. Okay? Right preaching of the word. Two, the proper administration of the sacraments, which the reformers limited to two, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And lastly, the right application of church discipline. I spelled that wrong. Discipline. There you go. <laughs> so, through the reformers, true church was not marked by a hierarchy or a pope or bishops or succession or any other kind of title. The true church is marked by this. Where you find the right preaching of the word, the proper administration of the sacraments, and the proper application of church discipline, the quote goes, there it is not to be doubted is a church of God. So that's how the reformers would have advocated what a true church looks like. Take away all the buildings and all the trappings and all the, the robes and all the succession and all the popes and all the bishops. At the very foundation of it, if there's the right preaching of the word, the right administration of baptism and the Lord's Supper, and the right application of church discipline, that's where Christ's body is. And you can see it visibly through these things. Turn to Acts chapter 2, and I think we'll see where they get this from. Acts chapter 2. I only have two markers in my Bible, so, you know, when you have multiple passages, it kind of limits. Acts chapter 2. Now, I'm not going to go over the whole, the whole thing of what's been going on in Acts chapter 2. Let's just uh, boil it down to this. The Holy Spirit has come upon the 120 disciples that are there in the upper room. And they're going out into the streets and boldly preaching the gospel. Peter stands up and preaches the gospel. We hear people say, brothers, what shall we do? Peter says, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. They repent after they receive the word. They are baptized. And it says today, that day, 3,000 souls were added to the church. Okay, so there were 3,000 converts on the day of Pentecost, in addition to the 120 and however many other believers there were in the known world at that time. So that's what happens at, at the day of Pentecost. And we pick up in verse 42 of Acts chapter 2. And it shows us what happens after these 3,000 were converted. Acts two forty-two, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and many wonders and signs were being done, the apostles. All things in common. Am I going in and out? Hmm. It's all right. I'll stay here. Try to stay here. So if you look in Acts chapter 2, we see these markings made visible, don't we? You see where the reformers would have gotten it from. One, they were devoted to apostolic teaching. Apostolic teaching. They were devoted to fellowship. They were devoted to the breaking of bread. 
and they were devoted to prayer. Apostolic teachings is, is pretty obvious. You have the, the apostles who have been given the authority of Jesus. They are, they are speaking as the Spirit is giving them power. They're doing signs and wonders among the people. And so it seems natural that, you know, we don't have a complete New Testament at this time. There, there, there's oral tradition going on through about the story of Jesus and the Gospels. The Acts of the Apostles through Luke is being written. We're walking through this time, so they don't have that. But what they do have is the real connection to these men who had walked and talked with Jesus. And if we remember what Jesus said to the apostles in the upper room, I will give you another comforter, and he will lead you into all truth, and he will remind you of the things I have showed you. He's promising his succession and authority to his apostles, so that when these people are submitting themselves to the teaching of the apostles, they are submitting themselves to the teaching of Jesus. So one, you can see they're submitting themselves to Bible teaching and preaching. They're sitting under teaching, people speaking to them. In our modern context, it has become, let's say, um, unpopular to use lecture, to use preaching, to use teaching. You see a lot of schools and a lot of professors who try to stay on the cutting edge of communication say that we need to move away from the lecture. We need to move away from a a one-down kind of dialogue or a monologue, and it needs to become more of a dialogue. And there is a place for dialogue in education. But we have to understand also that there is a time when we as learners need to sit quietly and listen to someone else speak to us. And that's really what goes on with preaching and teaching in the local church. We don't come here necessarily on a Sunday morning or even a Sunday night to have a dialogue with God. We come first and foremost to hear from God what he has said to us. And then we respond to him in application. So you have to understand that it's important first and foremost as the church that we submit ourselves to apostolic teaching. We're going to talk a little later about how you can you know, denote apostolic teaching from other kinds. Number two, they devoted themselves to fellowship. This is easy to understand. They met together. They loved each other. They were together a lot. They went into each other's homes. They had meals with each other. They did things with each other throughout the day, throughout the evening. I think we have a, a church that fosters that very well. Um, but if, if, if you're not connected to other people in this local church, I advise you, I even biblically admonish you to be connected to other people in this church. We're not all going to get along all the time. You know, you're going to have a group of people or a set of people that you will hang out with, that you will go out to eat with, that you'll have them over to your house all the time. Then you'll have those kind you might have over once a month or like, you know, once a year <laughs> or every other year. And that's okay. The body of Christ is made up of different kinds of people. And we're all different, but we're all called to get along and be together in the body of Christ. But fellowship is important. And fellowship extends beyond simply that handshaking time that we do at the beginning of every service. Fellowship should follow us out the doors into our homes. One of the marks of the Christian is to be open and hospitable to people. Able to have people into your house and to feed them and to have fun with each other. All fellowship does not have to happen under this roof or under that roof in the fellowship hall. Although that is fellowship, you can have fellowship in your homes or going out to eat together on Sunday afternoons, Sunday nights, Saturday nights, Monday nights, whenever. Spend time with the people of God. Your most intimate, connected friendships should be in this place. Your best friendships, your best relationships should be built with those to whom you've connected your life in a covenant of church membership. 
So think about that. Fellowship. Next, breaking of bread. Now, I don't think that they intended to simply repeat themselves with breaking of bread. It could mean simply eating together. That was the way they said eating together, breaking bread. It could also refer to, because it comes after fellowship, it could also refer to the celebration of the Lord's Supper. And we know that they were doing this in the early church, according to Paul. So this could be them gathering together to break bread, and as Jesus told them to do it in remembrance of him. So they're submitting themselves to apostolic teaching. They're fellowshipping with one another. They're observing the Lord's Supper. And four, they're devoted to prayer. They're communicating to God together. That's what the church is called to do. To not only hear God speak to us through the message, but to hear God speak back to us Uh, To hear God speak to us, and then we speak back to God through prayer. We respond to him, bringing our prayers and our petitions and our praises and our confession to him, responding to him as he speaks to us. All right, so those are those marks. Okay, Remember the reformers, where there's the right preaching of the word, the proper administration of the sacraments, the right administration of discipline. Then we look at Acts, and we see the foundation of those things, that the early church was devoted to apostolic teaching. They were devoted to fellowshipping with one another. They were devoted to the breaking of bread with one another, and they were devoted to prayer. Lastly, I want to go over four marks that come to us from somewhere else. If I were to ask any of our youth tonight, I think, I think I would be proud to know that they might know the answer to this. In the 300s, in fact, I'm going to ask our youth. In the 300s A.D., okay, there was a council of the church. There he goes, Jacob. Jacob's on it, yeah. The Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D., Okay, it's a long time ago. This isn't, you know, Billy Graham in the 1800s or whatever. This is 325 A.D. That's, you know, 17-something, 100 years ago. Why was this council called? Because they were meeting together to talk about a heresy known as Arianism. Arianism, Arius was the bishop. He was a preacher who had began to teach that Jesus was not God that Jesus was less than God the Father, that he was a created being of God, but he was not eternal and he was not deity. Okay? And the Council of Nicaea met to address this issue, and what they produced was the Nicene Creed. And the Nicene Creed tells us that Jesus is very God of very God, of one substance with the Father. Light of light, flesh of flesh, truth of truth. That's who Jesus is. But they also went on to address something else. How do we tell the true church that acknowledges the godhood of Jesus, how do we tell that church apart from the false heretical churches like those of Arius and the other heretics? How do we tell the difference? And they came up with four marks that this is where the center of our message is going to be tonight. They said, I believe in one holy Catholic an apostolic church. If you were to read the Nicene Creed at this very moment, it would say that at the end. I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. So let's just break those apart. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4, if you don't mind. Ephesians chapter 4. First in that list, if you were uh, listening, is one. I believe in one church. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. I, therefore, prisoner of the Lord, 
Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. I don't think that Paul could have been any clearer there with the repetition of the word one. If you look there, you see there is only one body, there is only one spirit, there is one hope, there is one Lord, there is one faith, there is one baptism, and this all comes to us because there is one God. There's one God. So you might be asking me today, how can you possibly say that there is only one church? If we're thinking in terms of buildings, we have a problem. Even if we're thinking in terms of denominations, we have a problem, don't we? There are over 2,000 Protestant denominations in the United States alone. 2,000 Protestant denominations. You know, from Baptist to Presbyterian to Seventh-day Adventist and Methodist and Episcopal and Lutheran and everything else that you can possibly imagine is here in the United States, not to mention all over the world. So how can we possibly say, I believe in one church? How can we possibly say that? Well, in 325, you have to understand that there was only one church. There was only the one Christian church. They had these councils to decide who was out and who was in. The Council of Nicaea met to say, can we get along with Arianism? Can Arius' teaching be fitted into what we call Catholic Christianity, or must it be excluded? And the decision was obvious. They excluded it, called it heresy, and said, if you believe that, you do not belong to the one true church. So at that time, it was very easy to say there's one church. There were heretical sects and splinters like Arianism, but by and large, there was remarkable unity among the church. But even today, how can we look around at all the churches, probably just right here in Avon, Park and proclaim together, I believe in one church. I believe in one church. Well, that calls us to understand the difference between the church universal and the church that is local. The universal church is sometimes called the invisible church because it consists of the body of Christ all over the world. The invisible church, if we understand the church to be the body of Christ, it is made up of those whose faith and trust is in Jesus Christ, regardless of their denomination, regardless of their nationality, or their race, or their gender, or their language, or any other dividing line. God has made how many new people? One new man from the many through the blood of Jesus. So that when we come to Jesus Christ in faith, that's what Paul is saying. You come to him as the one Lord through the one spirit, and there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. So when people become believers of Jesus Christ, regardless of their denomination or their nationality or any other thing that divides us, they are made one in the body with us because we make up the one church of Jesus Christ on the earth. We call it invisible because as we're sitting here in this place, we can't necessarily see all the believers even in our town, in our county, in our state, in our nation. And we certainly can't necessarily see all the believers all over the face of the earth. This is the universal church that makes us one. Now, that's different from the local church. The local church, such as First Baptist Church Avon Park, is a local manifestation 
of the larger universal church. We are a coming together, just a small part of the whole. That makes sense? That's how we say there is only one church of Jesus Christ. Although there are many manifestations and many representations of that one body, there is only one real body of Jesus Christ that is not consistent of only Baptists or Presbyterians or Lutherans or anyone else, but anyone who truly calls upon the name of Jesus Christ in faith and repentance, according to the Bible, is saved and made part of this one body, regardless of those secondary and tertiary differences that separate us. Okay, that's how we can proclaim there is one body. So the next one just said one. One holy church. We believe in one holy church. Now, just turn over one chapter in Ephesians, or two, three chapters. Ephesians chapter 5. Starting in verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present to the, chur- uh, the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Okay, so follow me here. When we're saved, when we're brought into the body of Christ, the term we use for that in the uh, theological jargon is justification. We're made right with God through faith in Jesus Christ. Right? We're justified in the sight of God by what Jesus has done, by our faith in him. Okay? That's conversion. That's getting saved. That's when God declares you not guilty. Okay? He declares you righteous. That's justification. One point. At that very moment, the Holy Spirit comes inside of the believer and begins the process of sanctification. Okay? Sanctification is not like justification. Justification happens at the moment We call out to Jesus in faith and repentance. Sanctification then begins to happen over time. We believe in progressive sanctification, that we are continually being made more holy and more like Jesus throughout the course of our lives, and that this process will not be completed until we are sinless in heaven with him. So we don't believe in an instantaneous sanctification where we're suddenly made not sinful anymore. We're being constantly renovated by the Holy Spirit. But I want us to see the difference. I'm going to have to erase some stuff. I want us to see the difference between what we call progressive sanctification. That's what I just talked about. And positional. Positional sanctification. Okay? Progressive sanctification is what's happening right now. You are progressively being made more like Jesus. But if we look at the root meaning of the word sanctify, it means to be set apart, to be made holy. And we just read here in Ephesians chapter 5 that Jesus gave himself for the church so that he might cleanse her and make her without spot or blemish, that he might present her as holy. So there's a sense in which, although we are progressively being made more holy, There's also a sense in which, positionally speaking, 
Not in actuality. When we look at ourselves, we're still sinful. But according to what God has declared about us, positionally, we are holy already. Make sense? We, 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 are being, we are righteous through the work of Jesus Christ. We are holy because God sees us through Jesus Christ. We are sinless as if we had never sinned because we are in Jesus Christ. So all of this stuff that we're being progressively made into is really just us coming to grips with our own identity of who we are in Jesus. We are already declared righteous. We are already declared holy. We are already declared not guilty. We are already declared sinless because we're in Jesus. Now, the reality of our daily lives has yet to catch up to that, and it will not catch up to that until we're in heaven. But at this very moment, because you're in Jesus and because he is righteous and he has given his righteousness and his holiness to you, you can say, I am positionally sanctified. I am positionally holy and righteous right now as if I had never sinned without spot or blemish before my Savior. That's what it means to be holy. So we as the church are one. and We as the church are positionally holy although we're being made more holy by the day. Next, let's look at apostolic. Turn back to Ephesians chapter 2. Not apostolic. Catholic. Catholic's the big one, isn't it? How many of you grew up in a tradition, maybe in a Catholic tradition, where you recited the Nicene Creed weekly? Anybody? Uh, Miss Nicole, the singular... Yeah, uh, a lot. Oh, and Mr. Brian back there, our Lutheran friend. Yes. Uh, did they use the word Catholic in the Lutheran version? Yes. Uh, a lot of churches have switched to say universal or whole church, and we'll talk about what that means. It makes us nervous as Baptists. If I were to ask you to recite the Nicene Creed even right now, which we could do with, with full assurance that we agree with it, if we were to cite that right now and you saw that, I believe in one holy... Hmm? Catholic. I remember we did this in Nashville at our church, and there was one gentleman who just, I explained it, explained it to him what this means. He just wouldn't buy it, and didn't, he just never wanted to say it. I ain't no Catholic. You know, as, as Protestants, I told you how the early Protestants felt about the Roman Catholic Church, and some of that hasn't let up at all, and some people don't want to identify as that. But I want to tell you right now that the word Catholic does not necessarily mean Roman Catholic. In fact, this is another one of those great words in which it's fun to break down. So I'm going to break it down for us. Uh, Catholic is just another... I should have used my black marker, shouldn't I? It's just another combination of Greek words. Kata holos. And that just simply means on or with. With the whole. Kata halos, or Catholic. That's where we get the, the English word from. And it simply means on or with the whole. Okay? So you can see that as the church is going through these early centuries and there are breakaways like Arianism that's teaching heresy and there's false teaching, they're saying they're not part of the whole church. They're a break off of the church. They're wrong. They're in error. They're heresy. And heresy means going your own way. They've drifted away from the one true church because of their teaching. So what it meant to be Catholic in that time had nothing to do with the Roman Catholic Church. There was no such thing until maybe the five or six hundreds. There was no such thing as the Pope until the five or six hundreds. 
but they would still identify themselves at that time as the Catholic Church. Why? Because they were the whole unified Church of Christ that was united in the proclamation of the truth they received from the apostles. That's what made them apostolic. That's what made them Catholic. It had nothing to do with Rome. It had nothing to do with the Pope. Nothing to do with any of the stuff we associate with Roman Catholicism. In fact, Roman Catholicism, Roman Catholicism simply adapted that term and said that applies to us because we're the one true church. But in reality, the one true church is the church that continually preaches the gospel as found in the scripture. The church that is known as Catholic is that which holds to the doctrine of the church that has been given to us from the apostles. And nothing is added to and nothing is taken away from that. So when we look at the church being Catholic, the universal, whole, true church that is defined by the right preaching of the word, the proper administration of the sacraments, right church discipline, that is identified by apostolic teaching and fellowship and breaking bread and prayer. When we look at those characteristics, you can say as a Protestant Baptist sitting in this room tonight, you are more Catholic than any Roman Catholic on the world, in the world. We are more Catholic because of our adherence to the biblical gospel of Jesus Christ than the entire Roman Catholic Church. So don't shy away from that term. When you hear the word Catholic, don't immediately think Roman Catholic and the Mass and the Pope and, and all the trappings of Roman Catholicism. Think the gospel. You belong to the one true and holy church, not because of some organization you belong to, not because you belong to the Pope or bishops or anything else, but because you belong to Jesus by faith. That's what makes us the Catholic church. And next, apostolic. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2 for apostolic. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 14. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Here's this great part. That he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. He's talking about Jews and Gentiles there. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We think of the term apostolic. It has been hijacked by certain forms of Pentecostalism that, that have apostolic in their name. You might see apostolic churches somewhere. Um, and the Roman Catholic Church says, okay, when Jesus said, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, the Roman Catholic Church claims that Jesus was identifying Peter as the first pope of the Roman Catholic Church. And they believe that from Peter, through unbroken succession, all the way down to Francis, the current pope, 
They believe that that unbroken succession from Peter makes them the one true apostolic church. That Peter chose the next pope and the next and the next and the next. And there's unbroken apostolic succession back to Peter. But I want to challenge that when we think about the word apostolic in New Testament terms. It's simply this, isn't it? Devoted to the apostles' teaching. Uh, One last scripture. Let's turn to Galatians chapter 1. One book before Ephesians. It's easy to find. Galatians chapter 1 verse 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but that there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. So what makes someone apostolic. Simply this, that you believe and you proclaim the same gospel that the apostles taught. The same gospel that Paul taught. Not another, not with additions, not with subtractions, but that biblical gospel of the apostles. Jesus said, I was sent from the Father. Jesus said, when I go up, I will send the Spirit. And through the Spirit, Jesus sends the apostles. Apostles means simply sent ones, those who are sent out. And so Jesus sends out the apostles in the same way that the Father sent Jesus. And we see there in Ephesians chapter 2 that the church itself is built on the foundation of the apostles. That elevates them to a, a high category of authority and power in the church. So that when we say we are apostolic, we are saying that we submit to the teaching of the apostles just as if it were coming from Jesus. So whether or not it's James or Jude or John or Peter or Paul or Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the author of the book of Hebrews, no matter what you're reading through the New Testament, just as Jesus said the foundation is on the prophets of the Old Testament— Those words from the apostles are just as binding and authoritative as if Jesus had said them himself. Our red-letter Bibles have done us a disservice because they've made us believe, somehow, that Jesus' words are of greater value than everything else. And while it's true that he was God in the flesh, Jesus came to do nothing but expound the scriptures and teach us about God the Father. So when the apostles come... They are speaking by the same spirit of authority that Jesus had. That's what it means for us to be apostolic. So that's been a long list. Marks, if you will. Right preaching of the word, proper administration of the sacraments, right church discipline. From the book of Acts, we have apostolic teaching, fellowship, breaking the bread and prayers. And from the Nicene Creed, we are one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. That's just a whirlwind tour of what the church is. Now, from this point on, I probably won't use the board because there won't be enough to, uh, to, to write. But from this point on, I'm going to really dive into what it is to be the local church. If you look at your handout on the bottom there on the back page, you see our church logo. 
and I'm going to use that logo. I don't know if you've ever even paid attention to what's on there. I'm going to pay, uh, use that church logo as kind of a map to guide us through what it means to be First Baptist Church of Avon Park. You see the Bible. We're a people of the Word. You see the water. We believe in believer's baptism. You see the cup and the bread. We believe in the Lord's Supper. You see the globe. We believe in missions and evangelism around the world and right here in our hometown. So we're going to go through that over the course of the next weeks. What it means to be First Baptist Church what it means to be the church of Jesus Christ today. Before we close, I just want to read you a quote from uh, Russell Moore, who's at the head of the uh, Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission for the Southern Baptist Convention. He had this to say about the modern church. We don't have Mayberry anymore. If we ever did, Good. Mayberry leads to hell just as surely as Gomorrah does. But Christianity didn't come from Mayberry in the first place, but from a Roman Empire hostile to the core to the idea of a crucified and resurrected Messiah. We've been on the wrong side of history since Rome, and it was enough to turn the world upside down. Christianity isn't normal anymore, and that's good news. The book of Acts, like the Gospels before it, show us that Christianity thrives when it is, as Kierkegaard put it, a sign of contradiction. Only a strange gospel can differentiate itself from the worlds we construct. But the strange, freakish, foolish old gospel is what God uses to save people and to resurrect churches. So as we in America are continually and more and more part of a contradictory church in a hostile world, I ask you to remember that that's exactly how the church found themselves in those first centuries. They didn't experience the privilege and the freedom and the rights that we do, yet God used them to turn the entire known world upside down. So as we venture through this uh, course looking at what is the church, I ask that you would remember that, that we are empowered by the Spirit, even in a hostile world. Jesus said, the world hated me, it will also hate you. And as we and future generations venture further down that road... We know that the Spirit is still the same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. It's still the Holy Spirit who calls and quickens people to come to faith in Christ. And so we shouldn't lose hope. We shouldn't lose heart. We should proclaim the gospel all the more because Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for this night and for the preaching of your word. Thank you for your scriptures that speak so powerfully to our current situation. And we ask that you would enable us by your spirit to truly be the church. To awaken our hearts and our eyes and our ears to be what you would have us to be in our cultural context, in our community and around the world. That you would show us what it is to be one holy, Catholic and apostolic church. Holding to the teaching of the apostles. Enjoying our fellowship with one another. Breaking bread together and spending time with you in prayer. Make us a people of the word. Make us more and more like your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. That's all for this edition of Living Faith. Stay connected to the teaching and preaching ministry of First Baptist Church by subscribing to this weekly podcast using your computer or mobile device. First Baptist Church is located at 100 North Lake Avenue in Avon Park, Florida. We meet every Sunday for worship at 1045 a.m. and 6 o'clock p.m. We invite you to join us if you don't currently have a church home and are looking for a place where the Word of God is proclaimed with power and clarity. 
You can find access to all of this and much more by visiting our website at fbcap.net. We look forward to connecting with you. Until then, this is Living Faith.